Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I was joined by Alex Stewart. Uh, the content of today's episode revolves around Liverpool. Um, we released a video on the channel, just on the YouTube channel just yesterday about Liverpool's pressing, whether they're pressing more or less. There seem to be some um, what seems statistically unusual uh, public perceptions or supporter perceptions around Liverpool's pressing. So we attempt to try and clean that up, talk about that in this episode, talk about what Liverpool are doing differently and their chances and a few of the individual players, um, etc. Um, I would also like to say that this episode is supported by The Athletic, which is the best place, really is, to read about football online. So visit www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO for a 30-day free trial and 50% and uh, 50% off an annual subscription if you are happy with that um, which works out to be about £2.49 pence per month 8p a day there you go um, but without further ado here is today's episode I do hope you enjoy it thank you for downloading and if you feel so inclined you can give us a rating on the Apple thing, whatever it is that you're listening on, and give us a review. That's very kind as well. There are some quite funny ones. Um, so if you are, uh, if you enjoy the episode, that would be great. If you have some time to do that, uh, thank you very much. Okay, Alex, we are talking about Liverpool. Um, the first thing that I want to talk to you about, it relates to a video that we released on the channel yesterday, if you're listening on day of release, i.e. Monday, the 4th of November 2019, about Liverpool's pressing. Now, we talked about this beforehand, and what interested us both was the idea that there is a perception uh, amongst supporters and amongst some pundits that Liverpool are pressing a lot less than they used to. Um, we thought maybe this was a legacy uh, impression based on their performances last year, which seemed much more to be about their defensive capabilities. And obviously Virgil van Dijk came into himself and uh, in some ways it appeared that they became much more of a structured outfit and that was how they went on to win the Champions League. But what is the reality of their pressing numbers? Because it's something that we have come to associate with Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool over the last few years. Is it really true that they are pressing less than they have been in the past? So if you look at Premier League numbers, they're actually pressing more this season than they did last season or actually the season before that. There has been, from when Klopp took over, there's been a, a gradual decline in pressing numbers. So the way that pressing is measured is a metric called passes per defensive action. And defensive action in this sense is a proactive defensive action. So it's moving to close down the ball or seeking to, to win possession back. It's very important to note that, that pressing is not just somebody moving towards the person in possession or the path of the ball. Pressing is a defensive system predicated on trying to win the ball back and then exploit the fact that you know the opposition is slightly out of position because they've just won the ball back. That's Gagan pressing or 
they are building an attack and therefore players are making runs and so on and that leaves holes elsewhere. So just so, to clarify so the language of this thing. Right, yeah. so at the beginning, just before you carry on talking, let's clarify that pressing is, is its own thing. Gagan pressing, as you say there, is a version of pressing which attempts to win the ball back immediately after it's been lost. Yes, when the absolutely. When the opponents are all over the place and not in their structure of either attacking or defending. Yes. When we say Gagan pressing, that's what we mean. When we say regular pressing, we mean a few different things. Can you just run through what they might be then? So generally speaking, pressing works on the basis of something called triggers. So a pressing trigger is uh, an opposition action that then encourages your side to move in relation to the ball or the man or the passing channel. So what's an example of a trigger? So a classic example of a trigger is if uh, the opposition centre-back has the ball then you would probably have a man relatively close to that. If he then shifts it to the fullback, that would be the trigger to then push onto that fullback and try and hem them in, mm -hmm. in possession in the, the opposition's defensive third in the corner. The, so, reason that that's, the reason that the ball moving wide is very often a pressing trigger mm -hmm. is straightforwardly that there's a touchline there. Yeah. So effectively, one of the angles that that defender could use to try and move the ball on is denied them by virtue of the fact that there's a, a, you know, a line if the ball goes over it, it's out. It's sometimes called an extra man, isn't it? It, it, is, it is sometimes called that. Mm. Yes, I know indeed. that. I know. Gosh, you're so good. Can I say then, or can we say that when seeking to understand, uh, obviously you see it, it, if we look at a team, it's very easy to see if they're pressing or not, i.e. if the players seem to be in a kind of concerted effort running at players who have, the opposition players who have the ball when they're out of possession. But is it then better to examine the triggers uh, or try and uh, isolate what those triggers are that are causing a team to press to then work out what they're trying to achieve by pressing. Because as you said, they might not press the centre-back, but they might press the full-back, or, or vice versa. They yeah, might do that exactly. Too. And by isolating what those triggers are, yeah. you might then try and infer from that what Liverpool, uh, what the team are doing, Liverpool right. in this example. So, so that, that's absolutely right. And this is why pressing is, is situational and is also opposition dependent. So for example, if you've got uh, center backs who are reasonably good at passing the ball forwards, but they're not amazing, they're not gonna rake a massive long pass out to the flank and cause you all kinds of problems, but you've got a deep sitting central midfielder who is that playmaker, for example, Chelsea, um, it would make sense in that instance to allow the centre-backs the opportunity to pass the ball to that central defensive midfielder, but then press them. Because if the centre-backs have the ball, it's not going to do you too much damage. But if the central defensive midfielder does, then it could. Also, presumably pressing the central, defense, uh, the, sorry, the central defender in that example would then leave gaps further up the pitch in which the central defensive midfielder with the passing range might be able to find more space. That's very possible. And pressing is a team system. It's not an individual thing. And if you remember the Steve Morrison podcast we did, that was a point that he made um, very sensibly, which is that, you know, just if you as one player start herring after the ball... Danny Ings or Carlos Tevez. <laughs> right. If, if the rest of your team either doesn't follow you in a concerted press or isn't sat back off in an alignment that makes sense with your actions, you're just one guy chasing the ball around. Mm. And that is pointless in terms of an expenditure of energy. It's also not going to achieve anything in terms of winning the ball back. There's, there's one other interesting, or not interesting necessarily, but important point to make. 
when we talk about high pressing, for example, that does not mean the intensity of the press is high. What it refers to is the position on the pitch in which it is occurring. So it's not like high fantasy. I don't... What <laughs> is that? I was trying to steer us into a conversation about literature genres, high fantasy being conceptually high rather than further down Middle Earth. Right. That would It's be, not a good analogy. No. No. Okay. Just move it, on. Okay. Mm. So... So it, it, the, the pitch would roughly be divided into three areas. Uh, they would be high, middle, and low. Low being the closest to your own defensive position, high being the furthest away. And so a team might conceivably have a high press, but then a mid block and a low block. Mm -hmm. Or they might have a high press and a mid press, and then a low block. So I think sometimes the terminology around these things is a little misleading because often... The, the language around pressing often does refer also to intensity. So this is a team that presses a lot. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily a team that presses high, if that makes sense. On that note then, the other thing I think about um, regarding these sorts of conversations is uh, Pep Guardiola as an example. And we've talked a lot about in, in the past about Man City or even uh, Bayern Munich and Barcelona cutting off passing lanes rather than pressing the man. But that's, is that still considered a form of pressing if they are increasing the pressure on the player, the opposition player with the ball, but not necessarily by virtue of running at them? Well, it depends because it's, it's the activeness with which that occurs. So you could, you could sit off and create a block of passing lanes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if the opposition responds to that, you know, the, the players that are blocked only have to move to one side or the other to become free. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, the, the blocking of passing lanes will also occur in concert with pressing of the man in possession because that hurries them. Right. And it denies them the time and space to wait for the passing lane to become free. Okay. Um, I mean, passing is some, uh, sorry, passing, pressing is is like marking in the sense that it can be the marking of space, the marking of, of roughly where the ball is or the marking of a man. So there are different forms of press that orientate around different things that are going on on the pitch. Okay. So we will try to be as specific as possible then in this conversation. Uh, having discussed the language, that is our understanding of it and that is how we will be talking about it. <laughs> Liverpool. Yes. Let's talk about Liverpool. So you say that actually in the Premier League they're actually pressing more, but you make the distinction that they're pressing situationally. Would it make sense to start with um, it, some examples maybe, or because you also said it's, it's opposition-based, what um, a general trigger might be for a Liverpool press or the sorts of teams they're more likely to press against, the sort they're more likely to, to sit off? So I think that the basic point here to make is that when we look at pressing numbers through, so our, our data provider Scout, you will have an average of passes per defensive action. So Liverpool... In Klopp's first season, they they were pressing an awful lot, and I think it, it, you know, the the numbers are in that video. But it's say it's like six or seven passes allowed to the opposition per defensive action. That's that's really intense pressing. Mm -hmm. that, and that is because can you just explain what passes per defensive action means? Yeah. So basically, what it means is the number of passes on average that the opposition is allowed before defence engages proactively now that doesn't mean that it's right. a successful action right but any attempt to close down the ball any attempt to win the ball back 
is is counted as a proactive defensive action and therefore you know if a team is able to restrict the opposition to four or five passes per defensive action that indicates a press right it could also indicate that the opposition is really bad right but generally speaking but generally speaking the lower the number yeah the absolutely. higher we assume the press is right so what you've seen is that over the course of Klopp's tenure up until the end of last season the number of passes per defensive action allowed by to the opposition has increased right the inference there for is that the press has lessened or everyone's getting better or everyone's getting better well it sort of tracks league average mm-hmm. i mean that it's it's also interesting that the league itself appears to be pressing slightly less than it used to right this is also with the slight caveat that sometimes these things are measured a little bit differently but you know we we can we can infer from relative positions of teams who's pressing who's not and you know that it, it sort of makes sense even if the exact numbers are are a little bit tricky this season the press has increased in the premier league but what you'll see is that there is quite a significant split in terms of how that press is engaged which matches so for example against genk in the champions league uh, in the, I think it was a 5-0 away win, 4-0 away win, mm-hmm. 4-1, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Liverpool pressed the shit out of Genk. Right. right? It was four passes per defensive action, something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas against Leicester and Chelsea in the Premier League, they sat off and it was more around 10, right. which is roughly what they're averaging last season. So what, what I think Klopp will be doing, for a start, you look at the fact that, that this Liverpool team now is... It has a spine which could be considered, and I hate this term, but it could be considered world-class, mm-hmm. right? So Allison in goal, Van Dijk, Fabinho as a defensive midfielder, and Firmino as a centre-forward. Don't forget James Milner. That's not... The spine is... No, I know, the, but we, we mustn't ever leave out James Milner. Why? Because, you know, he's the granddad of cool. He's the hip-hop of pop, you know? Sure. He's the top dog. I saw a... Uh, a stat, just a little James Milner tangent. I feel it would be unfair not to go on a James Milner tangent um, on a podcast about uh, Liverpool. James Milner tangent. I read a stat on the BBC Sports website. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a small little website. I'm filling for time because I can't find the stat. Here it is. Longest unbeaten runs when scoring in the Premier League. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. James Milner uh, has 10 more <laughs> than, the ne- than the next closest person just by virtue of the fact that he's been there for 100 years. But, um, okay, Liverpool have the world-class spine, your favourite world-class spine of all time. Uh, well, I don't know. I've not really thought about that. Sure. But, but what it what I think it means is that, that there is a real confidence now in, in that team's ability to control games. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Klopp's always said about pressing, and particularly Gagan pressing, is that is it's a form of playmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, there's a quotation to the effect that Gagan pressing is the most effective playmaker in the world or or something like that. Mm-hmm. A bit closer to the mic, would yeah, you please? Yeah, all right. Thanks. Okay, Dad. Yeah, that's that's much louder for the listeners there. Okay, good. Did you just call me Dad? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and and the, the balance is, yeah, Liverpool still played very direct. They still play... I think it's the second most long balls in the Premier League out of anyone, which might be a surprise. They still attack very quickly and very directly. But they don't have to have such a reliance on 
winning the ball back quickly through a press and then releasing a quick counterattack because they now have players who have the ability to control the game, particularly further back on the pitch. So Because they're really good, basically. Basically because, because they're the really better. good. Because the team is better. Yeah. They don't have to rely on... And, and you go back to the, the way that Klopp kind of really started to articulate his philosophy of pressing was in response to Bayern Munich's dominance. Mm -hmm. So when he was at Dortmund, uh, and he was developing his pressing ideas at Mainz, but Dortmund was the place where he really kind of thought, okay, well, the squad we've got, it, it's young, it's very fast, it's good at certain things, but there is a team in the league that is able to control possession, control the ball, and, and essentially by virtue of its quality is almost unbeatable. Breaks the press. How do we work out how to get around that and mm -hmm. pressing was kind of his answer to that that you you seed possession to these big teams and and in in the first instance with with Dortmund you know it was Bayern Munich that he was concerned about give them the ball that's fine press them situationally win the ball back when they're not in the position to be able to defend it properly and hit them very very hard and very quickly on the counter-attack I mean make it hard for them is the way that that would have been said in the 70s you know if you and that's a sort yeah. of cliche of a football manager of a team going up against, you know, as the underdog going up against a, a big team with lots of excellent experienced pros the cliche is always don't make their lives easy you're going to lose but go out there right. and make it hard for them to but win there are different ways of doing that and of course, one way of doing that would be like the the Wimbledon to kick approach. the shit out of them. Well, you you, <laughs> you kick the shit out of them. You have two deep banks of four, and by deep, I mean close to your own goal mm -hmm. that are narrowly spaced, and you you know you try very very hard not to let anyone play through that. When you win the ball back, you lump it forwards yep. to some big guy who's got some quicker little guy next to him and see what you can do on the counter-attack. And then you whisper in their ears that your mother never loved you. Those sorts of things. Yeah, that, yeah. that kind of psychological mm. warfare. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Klopp's pressing was, was a sort of a different answer to that problem. What happens when there is a dominant side in the league who can control possession, who have world-class defense goalkeeper like how do we get around that and 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 do something with it so that's not to say that pressing and um, pressing wasn't invented by club um that it was popular in germany before then with people like ralph ranjik and you know the 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 ix team of the 70s the dutch team of the 70s they pressed they pressed in a very kind of swarmy concerted sort of way it was more about but there was less organization in it, it was more kind of chasing the ball around a lot but <laughs> You know, so this uh, this conception of of winning the ball back when the opposition have only just got it isn't new. Mm. The the idea of of surrounding the player in possession, denying them passing opportunities, and then looking to strike from that that's not new either. It's just that by adding some structure and adding some kind of specific philosophy to it, it's been transformed into what it is now. Okay, so Liverpool have their spine, and the key being that they compressed more situationally is that arguably also because Klopp has now been in charge for a long time and all the players that have, have either the players that have been there for that length of time uh, have now are now fully used to the way he wants them to play and or the players that he's brought in are players who are maybe more um, uh, more lean towards that style of play or perhaps understand it already anyway yeah I, I would say that's true I mean I think when you look at the first season that he was in charge there was a kind of harem scarum approach to it it was 
just chase it down. Rock and roll football. Try and or heavy metal football. Heavy metal football. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> rock and roll football. Who's rock, oh, rock and roll football is that radio show, isn't I, it? I think you've just made that up. No, no. There's a radio show on a on a uh, on a British uh, digital commercial radio station. Is it, is it absolute? They've got rock and roll football where you, you're in the car, you're driving somewhere, you're listening to them reading out the results and in between uh, updates on the football, there's a lot of rock and roll. <laughs> it's a real thing, I swear to God it is. So it's literally just rock and roll plus football? Yeah. Okay. I, I rock quite and roll like football. Driving around with the radio off. Right. Well, well that's because you're just seething all the time. Well, no, it's, it's very difficult to find silence, isn't it? It so is in a car. If yeah. you're driving... Like I was driving back at night the other day from Somerset and it was, it was very late. It was very dark. Why were you in Somerset? I was, it doesn't matter. The, the point being that it was, I was visiting my brothers. They were doing something. Right. Something illegal, no doubt. No, not something illegal. Okay. But it, it was, it was quiet. It was totally quiet. So I turned the radio off and you just have like two hours back with no sound, no noise, beautiful right i prefer rock and roll football right well anyway, i don't think it would have been on at that time anyway heavy metal football yeah so <coughs> yeah so pressing like i said pressing is a it's it's a deliberate game plan and you can kind of you can kind of synthesize some of the elements of it by just having fit players and telling them to chase everything down mm -hmm. but that's fairly easy to get around and it's tiring and it's not as effective as something that is specifically geared, like you say, with triggers so that you know if you're playing Team X and their left back is particularly one-footed, if they get it on the wrong foot, that's when you go for it. Mm. Or it's this guy who's the playmaker or this team always look to try and hit it long from their fullbacks so we always press the shit out of their fullbacks. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think now a combination of Liverpool's ability to control possession, uh, Liverpool's in some ways inability to, uh, I, I don't want to say deviate. They had, they have a very strong philosophy. The, the way they play is fairly consistent and there's not much of a plan B in that regard, but what there is, is a lot of versatility within plan A. And, and as example of the weekend shows, they do tend to find the goals they need with plan A. Yeah, I think even that's, if it's at the last minute. Yes. Um, and I think that what, what you can see is a refinement of, of an approach. Klopp is more confident in his squad. His squad are more able to fulfill very specific tactical instructions predicated on opposition and all the rest of it. Um, and it's evolving because naturally, you know, when a when a football manager has a particular philosophy and, that, you know, I think there are there are some managers who kind of cleave to a philosophy and develop it and refine it, then that is a longer process than just coming in, looking at a squad and going, OK, well, we've got creativity here, not there. So we're going to play a certain way. And, and that kind of variance of season to season, job to job. There are some managers who go through and their adaptability is what makes them proficient. There are other managers like a Klopp or a Pep Guardiola or a Jose Mourinho who have an overall way of thinking about the game. And then if they're given sufficient time and resources 
will be able to tweak and refine, but they stay close to what their mm-hmm. original intention is. So what else has changed then? Because we've seen, we've seen, you know, obviously Liverpool did not did not win the league last season, but they did win the Champions League. They've gone, as we discussed with um, with Nikos in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, they've gone from being a team, um, aside from finishing second with Brendan Rodgers, who were consistently finishing outside the top four, to now looking like... Um, certainly you know on course at the moment to win the league if they carry on with the form they currently have or at least being in a sort of two horse race there with Manchester City whose xg incidentally is significantly higher than Liverpool's that's the other thing that we've noticed this season is that Liverpool's xg um I don't know if it, whether it's dropped dramatically or whether it's just significantly lower than Manchester City's and that's the same um that was the same case as last season do you know that um, so this season, and you know, all expected goals models are all different. So I'm just quoting Y Scouts here. Um, Manchester City have an expected goals of 31.2, and they've scored 34. Mm-hmm. So that that's pretty good, and not outside the bounds of sustainability. Uh, Liverpool's xG is 22.7, and they've scored 25. Mm-hmm. Again, the same. But okay. yes, the the overall point being that not only have Liverpool. Liverpool have more points, but they've they've scored fewer goals, and you would have expected them to score considerably fewer goals as well. Why would you expect them to score fewer goals? Oh, because their xG is much lower. Oh, I see. I sorry. Mean, so between sorry yes. between between Liverpool and City, there is a, mm-hmm. a significant difference both in the number of goals scored and also the expected number of goals. Right. And would you, looking at City and Liverpool, expect there to be a difference of? I mean, that's not far off ten, is it? Um, it's not far off 10. Um, would, would you I, expect there to be that kind of difference given that the way that both teams play? Um, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. because Liverpool are still leading the league. I mean, they've, they they have had more points with less goal, with fewer goals. But. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and what's interesting is that the disparity defensively is much, much less. So Liverpool have conceded nine, often expected conceded of 9.7 mm-hmm. and City have conceded 10 with an expected conceded of 10.2. Right. So the, the the gap is in the attacking sphere. It's not in the defensive sphere, which which is interesting. Uh, City creates high quality chances. That's that's kind of how they play, and that's through the dominance of possession. It's because they attack in a particular way. It's because they're they're very much looking to congest the half spaces, get pullbacks for for players like Aguero or Raheem Sterling, kind of running in on things. Um, Would you suggest then that? Given we're not far from Christmas now, it's the beginning of November, so I guess you know a month or two, and we'll be we'll be halfway through the season. We've got a fair amount to go on. That there is a difference of ten, both in or nearly ten, in both in the goals scored and the, and a significant difference in in the xG as well. Would you look at that and think across the course of the season? We know based on this that Manchester City are going to create more high quality chances or would be likely to create those chances therefore convert it they have a better chance of converting more of them than Liverpool do therefore Liverpool are going to create less of them and those that they do not convert which does happen to teams and does happen to strikers and is something that is out of the control of the coach and the system that that is a riskier line to take if Liverpool want to win the league I think the key point really there is is the defensive solidity actually um, I think if if both teams are capable of keeping it very very tight at the back, which they are, um, and uh, particularly this season, I would say because of the injuries, 
that City have had defensively and, you know, the requirement to play Fernandinho at, at centre-back and Rodri, I think, has played at centre-back as well now. Um, Liverpool are stronger in that department. Mm-hmm. To me, that's more important because ultimately, if if those two teams don't lose again, which is entirely plausible, uh, it doesn't matter if you're winning 6-0 or 1-0. But, but given that Liverpool, I mean, what are the results? We should maybe have a quick look at Liverpool's results or would you mind having a quick look and letting me know how many games they've won by more than one goal? Because the point I'm th- sort of trying to make is that if Liverpool are creating significantly less opportunities to score than Manchester City are, it suggests that the goals that they are scoring because they have scored fewer and have more points are worth more than the goals that Manchester City are scoring because they've scored more and have fewer points. Therefore, in those instances where those chances aren't converted, it, what, one, a chance not being converted for Liverpool it would it would um, make sense that it would matter much more than a chance that isn't being converted for City, given that yeah. the goals are worth that's, more or that's less. That's definitely true. And yes. so if we can say that over the course of a, of a regular season, Liverpool and City and uh, players generally are just as likely as each other to enter periods where they aren't scoring goals, when we're seeing it a little bit with Mohamed Salah at the moment, that's for other reasons that we can maybe discuss further. But um, players do go through periods of, of, of up and down in their form. Mm. Let's say that that was evenly distributed across both play, uh, both sets of players, it would still disproportionately affect Liverpool based on how many goals they are winning games by. Yeah. So h- how many fixtures have they won by more uh, in the Premier League, won by more than one goal? It's a very long way of putting that question. Uh, it's because I was giving you time to look, at, look it up. I mean, I, I looked it up oh, about right. a minute ago. Yeah. So four of their first five games mm-hmm. were won by more than one goal. Mm-hmm. But since then, which was the 3-1 victory over Newcastle, uh, in the middle of September, they've only won by one goal. So it's potentially very significant. Though. So it's potentially very significant. <laughs> Should yes. we then move they've on? Al- they've also conceded in all of those games. They've conceded in every game in the Premier League since they beat Sheffield United away right. at the end of September. The other thing that we want to discuss, and look, we're, we're halfway through now anyway. So um... Oh, and they're playing Manchester City next. Are they really? Did we know that? No, we didn't know that. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Should we really? Oh, no, it's fine because it's going out tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, maybe we'll, ha- maybe we'll have to <laughs> come, back, come back to this next week. Uh, that'll be, that will be interesting. Well, maybe next week we could talk about Manchester City, depending on what. That would be goes. then useful. That would be useful. Yeah, okay. God, we should have planned, shouldn't we? We really should have planned. We do plan. We always plan, right? We're incredibly assiduous. This is an advert. Beer. Beer? Beer. Beer? Would you like free beer? Yes. Cool. Okay. How uh, do I get such an offer of free beer? The easiest way is to host a podcast and then people will send it to you. <laughs> that really is true. But in the absence of that opportunity, can I suggest beer52.com? That's beer as a word and then 52 as two numbers. Rather than a concept. Dot com. <laughs> That's a beer as a concept. Beer as a concept. Um, yes. Uh, and then if you do, if you put a forward slash TIFO after that beer52.com, mm. whew, the opportunities are endless. Shall I tell you what those opportunities are? Please do. And I'll show the people watching the types of beers that they might expect to receive. Okay. Well, you're going to receive... Well, I'd say eight, but I'd be lying because it's also two extra. Yeah, so that, that makes, that makes ten. ten. <laughs> uh, and all you need to do um, is cover four pounds ninety-five for postage. 
So uh, basically, Beer 52 um, take the hard work out of finding uh, beers that are nice and interesting mm. by using their network and research and so on to find loads and loads of cool producers from all around the world. Yes. So, yeah, you can leave at any time. I'm going to taste some now. As in leave the arrangement rather than just abdicate all responsibility for your life and disappear into the distance. You're dribbling. Do drink responsibly. Do please drink responsibly. Oh, I am dribbling. I didn't drink responsibly, and that's why I had to stop 17 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to the water. Just go to beer52.com forward slash TIFO to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, TIFO customers, that's you guys, get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's beer52.com forward slash TIFO. I would like to say that um, we are supported by The Athletic. This podcast is. uh, Visit www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO to get 50% off an annual subscription and you get a 30-day free trial to see whether or not you would like to do that. Um, it's relevant to this conversation because we are talking about Liverpool and a piece that which we both enjoyed reading written by Michael Cox, friend of the podcast. Um, Michael Cox, how United isolated Liverpool's fullbacks to win the tactical battle. Now, this was, what, three games ago for Liverpool as we're recording it? <clears throat> results since have been have been positive i.e. they've won the game since is that correct uh, that is correct they've yes. won two games yes although it, it might be fair to say from a layman's perspective i.e. me uh, that they've looked a little bit more hard won particularly uh, the weekend's game where they scored their uh, they scored their goal in extra well added time what do they call it added time added time same thing isn't it no extra time's actual extra time isn't it added time injury time Right. But they scored their goal in injury time. Anyway, okay. the point I'm making yeah. uh, is, well, firstly, have a quick, have a, let us know what the article was about for the purposes of this advert. Um, essentially, what it was saying was that because, so it's, it sort of relates to what we're talking about mm. in the sense that Liverpool were aware that with Rashford and James, Man United had two very quick attackers who would be particularly keen to isolate one of Liverpool's two centre-backs. Therefore, the two full-backs, Alexander-Arnold and Robertson, were not proactively pressing up, either pressing up to just gain space or pressing up to actually press a, a person in possession because they wanted to stay back a little bit more to help out their centre-backs where possible. Because Solskjaer used a much more attacking 3-4-1-2 than the sort of maybe expected kind of five strung across the back. That meant that United's wing-backs, which included Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who is you know, most well-known as a defensive fullback, that afforded them an awful lot of space. Mm. Um, whether that's pinning the... I mean, it's, it's sort of... It's not the wing-backs that are pinning the full-backs. It's... It's the, the quick wide attackers. Forwards, yeah. yeah, exactly. But the um, fullbacks are sort of caught between well, a rock and a half base in a way. Like, do you stay with Rashford? Right, exactly. Or do you come forwards and try and press Young, who's yep. running into acres of space? Indeed so. And, and I think the tricky, the tricky question there, and, and it's, it's often one of the balances that you, you worry about if you're organising a defensive structure, is, is it better to allow the ball to get to a dangerous player 
but then have more people there to deal with that dangerous player? Or is it better to try and cut the ball off at source and prevent it ever getting to that dangerous player, even if that means that if it does, they're then Mm -hmm. one-on-one? And I think in this instance, what's being suggested in the article that, that Michael's written, and it makes a lot of sense, is that Liverpool took a more defensive approach, um, probably worried by the pace of those two players, justifiably so. Uh, and, you know, that Rashford does like very much to run at that that right-sided centre-back and sort of try and peel outside of him. Um, and so because of that, that the full-backs didn't push forwards. Now, this, this is an overall development in the way that Liverpool's full-backs have been playing. Mm-hmm. They are less uh, the... Well, they're still probably the predominant source of of forward progressive passes and, and progressive movement, but but maybe slightly less than they were last season. Last season, mm-hmm. they were basically wingers who were asked to defend sometimes. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I've read a few things about about this actually. Um, one of them suggesting that. Andy Robertson, Trent Alexander-Arnold, both young players, so much was asked of them last season that it is possible that they need to be a little bit more protected in terms of their ability to continue at that um, capacity of games. Uh, So maybe that's one of the reasons why they aren't being used so wholeheartedly in the way that they were last season. Um, Other ones, as you've just discussed, other other opinions also available. Um, But as 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 far as this particular game went, I know there's a sort of there's a temptation on my part and I think on the media's part generally to paint these sorts of results as a blueprint for how to beat Liverpool. Um, how realistic is it to talk about the the formation of the system uh, used by Man United in this game against Liverpool as an example of something which could be picked up and used by other teams to the same effect? Or are there enough examples within the game of poor decision-making on the behalf of, of Liverpool's fullbacks or a, a, an obvious tweak that Klopp could make uh, in a similar situation next time that would negate this being a problem? I what do you think? I think that's a really difficult question to answer because you Thank can... You. Yeah, no, well done. Mm. Um you can set a team up to play in a particular way. And then like you say, you know, individual errors, lapses in concentration, an opposition player having a particularly inspired game can undo all of that. Um, Liverpool's issue in some regards is that their primary playmaker outside of their fullbacks is probably Firmino in turn. Firmino. Firmino. People will get very upset with you. Do you know what? I couldn't care less. Really? Firmino might care. Put something in the comments. Mm. I don't give a shit. Okay. Firmino is, because of the way that he will drop back and look to play those inside forwards who are kind of cutting inside in, he, he, you know, a lot goes through him. He is crucial. The fullbacks, though, through their ability to carry the ball, through their ability to hit good long passes, but also get crosses in uh, and and with the, the, the inside forwards kind of squeezing up inside those fullbacks pushing forwards. Uh, they are the primary playmakers in, in some regards. It's not Liverpool's midfield. Liverpool's midfield, and here we can bring in James Milner if you'd like. I'd love to. Is is fairly workmanlike. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be disparaging to those players. They're, they are extremely good at what they do. Well, we should caveat by saying Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain spent a lot of time injured. Naby Keita seems to be This is the point I was going to make about last season. Right. So what, you know, what's particularly good in an ideal world for Liverpool, right? 
you've got your front three of Mane, Salah, and then Firmino in the middle. As Firmino drops back and those two players run inside, you're also creating pockets of space in behind those two forwards or running on an overlap outside of them. For your Bernardo Silvers, for example, which we see him do at This kind of 8-10 hybrid thing Mm -hmm. that we've talked about before. Now, Oxlade-Chamberlain is fantastic at that. Naby Keita is fantastic at that. If you don't have those players, then it requires the fullbacks to be the ones that are pushing up and getting outside. If you've got very young, very quick fullbacks who are also technically very capable as Liverpool do, that's not a massive issue. But it does rob you of that kind of progress. You know, Liverpool's midfielders, whether it's Wijnaldum or, or Henderson or Milner, they're not the ones that are looking to to kind of squeeze up into the box behind that front line to, well, to a certain extent, but a not the other two. Yeah. yeah but, and and but, I think we should be fair to him and say that in the absence of the more obviously creative players in the team, he's pulled his weight and, and kind of, oh, this, you know, this he's, is he's, not he's, a criticism no, no, of those no, no, players no, no, at of course, all. Yeah. No. I feel like it's just worth, it's just worth saying that he's yeah. kind of, and, and, and he's, shown, he's shown himself to be a good player. Well, and, and relatively versatile. I mm-hmm. mean, essentially when Aldum's a six, right, he's quite a, d- it's funny because he plays in a very different role for, for um, the Netherlands, doesn't he? He plays in that like attacking midfielder role for, well, the, but, for the Netherlands. But also he's played as a false nine for Liverpool. Mm-hmm. You know, he's basically taken the Firmino role when Firmino's unavailable. Yeah. So, you, you know, there is a cool guy, very cool guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he's lovely. Yeah. Um, so there is there is a versatility there, but just because a player is is versatile and very capable, it doesn't mean they're as good as other players in in the squad. And you can say that without being overtly critical of them. Mm-hmm. So if you had a player like an Oxlade Chamberlain that is able to to burst forwards into that place, or, or Kaita, who's particularly good at carrying the ball, breaking the press in that regard, it gives Liverpool an extra dimension. Mm-hmm. that's a dimension that they were lacking. And, you know, I, I think both of those players are on a fairly tortuous return from that sustained period out from injury. So they will be coming back. And I think we'll expect to see in that instance, Liverpool will will look to control the ball a little bit more. They'll Is there room for press... improvement in those areas though? Then like, let's say, because when you put it in those terms... It's interesting to think about Liverpool's midfield as it, the quality of which, you know, as it was related to a clearly, we'll use that term again, world-class front line, world-class defensive line. Yeah. Um, I, I love James Milner et al. You mm-hmm. know, I th- and I, I agree, I think they do a fantastic job. But when you put it in those terms, it is easier to see that maybe there's obvious room for improvement in the midfield. Can you think of players that, that, that uh, from from other clubs, from elsewhere, other countries perhaps that, that might be able to take Liverpool to that ne- next stage because they are at that difficult point now where they're such an established team and where the players they have in the squad are of such a quality that upgrading them is very, very expensive and very, very difficult, right? But can you think of um, midfield players who, who are perhaps realistic or tangible targets um, who could come in in, in, in the summer? I uh, I wouldn't necessarily look to... I mean, the, the, the simple fact is that if if Liverpool get either one of, but ideally both, Keita and Oxlade-Chamberlain fit, they, they don't need that. It's been a real problem for them though, hasn't it? I mean, like, Keita particularly has been consistently yeah. injured. But then, but this is why with... This is why you see, for example, and I, I just checked before, Liverpool have played more long passes than anyone else in the Premier League. Mm. more than Burnley, you know, more than Sheffield United. Um, 
it's because that in build-up, generally speaking, that, that midfield is bypassed. Now, this kind of begs the question around squad building, that what Liverpool have done is adapt. In the absence of those players, they've gone for functionality, ball-winning, discipline, tactical intelligence in that midfield. And that has worked really well. They won the Champions League. The progressive element comes from the fullbacks and it comes from the world-class front line. If you can then integrate a player like an Oxlade-Chamberlain or a Kaita, that will be a match-specific thing. And Klopp is really good at, at, at when he has a full squad available, mm. picking based on what's going to work game by game, situation by situation. So do they need to go out and spend 40, 50 million pounds on a player like a Stefano Sensi or something? Probably not, because that's that's going to upset the balance. I mean, my concern more around Liverpool would actually be the overall age profile of the squad, mm -hmm. because I think they're maybe the third or fourth oldest average team in the league now. How much of that is brought up by James Milner being 100 Probably years all old? all of it, yes. <laughs> that, that, that average is 78 it's just incredible. based on his age. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> We it, do love James Milner. They, they, that is an area where you know, the, the midfield is going to need thought and work. Uh, but I don't think it's necessarily because they've got wholly players of the wrong profile in there. It's that actually players of the right profile are maturing to the point where you're going to need to replace them at some point in the next two, three years. Niko Kovac was um, sacked yesterday, or, or I mean, according to the official statement, uh, left by mutual, mutual consent, consent uh, yeah. which, you know, I don't know how mutual that was. No. But if if I were the coach after that 5-0 drubbing, I'd have mutually consented my way out of there too. <laughs> I don't actually feel that, and it wasn't worth saying. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because I know that their assistant coach has taken over for, for, for the time being, and obviously it's a long way before the end of the season. But let's say that Jurgen Klopp were to win the Premier League with Liverpool this year. Um, he would have achieved everything he could possibly hope to achieve with Liverpool mm. uh, the age profile of that squad probably does mean that in a couple of years time there's a big rebuild that needs doing does Klopp really want to be the coach who, who, who's going to take that take that on and if he's not going to take the German national squad which he might do after Euro 2020 depending on how those results come in mm. there are there could potentially be depending on what happens with that Bayern Munich vacancy two obvious big jobs that Klopp might want to think about taking um, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really good question. Um, my instinct would be that Klopp wouldn't go to Bayern. Well, the thing is, it was funny because we talked um, we talked to Rafa Honigstein. We talked to Rafa Honigstein about that very thing. Were you here for that? No, no, Seb was here for that. That was it because I, I made the same assumption. I thought that he wouldn't because of his association with Borussia Dortmund. Um, That's and, not why I would assume he wouldn't. Uh, why, why would you assume he wouldn't? Um, because Bayern's got a weird behind-the-scenes setup with Bayern a lot got of a weird setup behind the scenes. It was very what you said was very rhythmic. It right. just encouraged me to. I mean, their nickname, not for nothing, is FC Hollywood, and is it? They have yeah, wow. They have a lot of of big former players that are involved in decision making there, and I think Klopp is somebody who. I mean, obviously, as is proven by the fact that he's at Liverpool and also that he worked with Zorka at Dortmund can work within a structure. Yeah. But I think he needs to work within a structure that is very sympathetic to what he's seeking to do. And 
you don't you don't get to be someone like Klopp without having a degree of ego. Mm. And I'm I'm not saying that there's difficulties in controlling that, but I think I think the setup has to be right. And maybe it, my instinct would be that at Bayern there would be too many competing egos. I don't think it's a loyalty thing to Dortmund necessarily. No, sure. So interesting. Although that could well play into it. Mm. I mean, he's never going to go to Schalke, but he should. I'd love him to take the um, the German national team job. The thing would be so exciting. What about him? Him? I mean, I hate to hate to put Liverpool fans listening through this, but what about him at Real Madrid or Barcelona? I, I very rarely hear those those associated rumours. I it it's weird, isn't it, that someone like Klopp just seems basically built for either German or English football. Yeah, and and it doesn't necessarily make sense because, like you say, you know, Barcelona were a side that that pressed very. Yeah, very heavily and very astutely. And I mean, I'm thinking when we had that conversation about upgrading the midfield, I'm thinking about imagine if Liverpool's team had Xavi, Iniesta, right. and, uh, and Messi, um, and Busquets. I mean, it, sorry, it, it's worth <clears throat> it's worth just saying quickly that if you um, if you look at the Bayern squad at the moment with players like Kingsley Coleman and Serge Gnabry, uh, Leon Goretzka, there's there's a lot of really exciting players if you look at the Bundesliga stats those guys in fact even possibly European wide or top five leagues wide Komen is like in the top 10 for so many different attacking attributes Mm. at the moment he's having a, a really really good season and so it would be an extremely appealing job to someone and you can you can see how that Bayern squad with some additions, I mean, they they definitely need help in defence. Someone needs to come in and replace or challenge, and then replace Manuel Neuer. Um, but like, there's a huge amount of potential there, and Klopp could clearly do things with that squad. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't know. It's tricky. We do it, I suppose, but it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I think I think there's there's always a question around when you've got a period, particularly if it coincides with a period of success, but even if that success is relative, and I, and I think maybe here the, um, the Premier League corollary is Pochettino at Spurs, where you've got a manager who's been in situ for quite some time now. You know, they've both been there for four seasons, five seasons, whatever it is. Um, there's a clear style, a clear philosophy, but obviously Spurs squad is in need of more of an overhaul than Liverpool's but and are doing awfully (laughs) yeah they're not doing too well I mean I think they're lower in the league than Manchester United which is really saying something sure I don't don't. 13 points from 11 games I think is that's quite bad my point being that that these are managers who have they have shown loyalty to the club particularly Pochettino has had his ear bent several times I, I think by other People, but you also, could also argue that it's hard, it's it's more of a thing for him to show loyalty to the Spurs at their performance level with their ability to spend than it is for Klopp at Liverpool with them winning the Champions League and yeah, but they only won, yeah, but they only won the Champions League last season. My yeah, but point, they bought Virgil Van Dijk, which was doable. Right, correct. My point being that that these are managers who have built a relationship with the club and are seeing that through. But there must one would assume there must come a point where either not that challenges are ticked off, but either something becomes insurmountable, like potentially it is now at Spurs. You know, Spurs' best chance of winning the league was a couple of seasons back. Yeah. It, you know, their best chance of winning the Champions League was last season. Yeah. Can we see that happening again in the near future without radical overhaul and massive levels of investment? Probably not. Liverpool are going to get to a point where 
either they win possibly win the league this season or it, you know it just becomes like a city like steamroller effect mm. however invested you are in a club however invested you are in a squad there are always going to be fishers and i think the 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 sort of alex ferguson arson wenger constant rebuild constant process thing i i just can't really see that happening i don't feel like people uh, in the world today do that anymore i feel like you could draw a parallel with the way that people work generally generally i mean yeah it was not uncommon for people of our parents generation to maintain the same job whatever Absolutely that job right. was forever yeah. it is very uncommon for that to well, i mean i guess we don't have full lives to examine yet but for people of our generation yeah all of my friends are either freelancers or they've worked in several different jobs and, and move every few years yeah seems to not only be something which suits people's sensibilities but also actually the way to get on rather than sticking in the same place you know it's a bit yeah i guess what's interesting with this though is that it, football is it's by default it's hierarchized because it's it exists in league tables so there gets to a point where, or it gets to a point where there there really isn't anywhere else to go. I mean, if you're, say, for example, if you're Jose Mourinho, then... Jose. Jose. He's from Portugal. Oh, okay, cool. Just say you don't care one more time and then carry on. I don't care. Okay. Um, there, Unless he is going to do something kind of arbitrarily irritating and difficult like go to a second division side in portugal i'd love that which would be pretty peak jose he should take some he should take the sunderland job right i mean that's you can kind of almost oh. imagine something that stupid happening but outside that sort of fantasy of something stupid happening there is a really small number of jobs that he would be willing to take and that would be able to afford him mm. and basically you're looking at now PSG, Real, Barcelona, maybe Atletico Madrid. Qatar 2022? Uh, yeah, Qatar national side, sure. Um, but then is there prestige there? You've got a couple of clubs in Italy, Juventus, maybe Napoli. I mean, you know, there's a funny thing with someone like Conte going to Inter because it's back in Italy and that makes more sense. But And Dortmund and Bayern. You know, there's there's such a small number and of those. Would never hire Jose Mourinho. No, they, absolutely really? not. Um, so, you oh. know, the the number of teams that are big enough, good enough, have sufficient ambition and investment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like that's a really diminishing number. Now, does that mean that actually, after a period of relative instability managerially, we are going to see a manager like Jurgen Klopp spend? 15 years at Liverpool it's possible but it would be possible I think more by virtue of the fact that Klopp is unlikely to go to the five or six other places that would make sense for him rather than because he wants definitively to stay at Liverpool and build a massive legacy and all the Maybe rest of it. Maybe he'll just retire or we'll have a big long break. Yeah and but you do sometimes wonder with football managers that it's it's for a lot of them, I don't think it's about money. It's not like there are people who... It doesn't who are, seem to be for Klopp, does it? No, there are people who are definitely driven to stay in incredibly intense careers because they're just chasing the next deal or, you know, it's never enough. Mm. I, you, know, I, I, you look at how much money some people have had, have got and you think, <laughs> why would you not just retire? I mean, you've, but, but I think there's a, 
there's a competitive element, a desire to win that not irrespective of money because that would be stupid, but almost mm. irrespective of remuneration. There are people who just need to keep challenging themselves and winning stuff. Yeah. Um, Speaking of people who've got so much money, um, you wonder why they don't retire. I visited your family home <laughs> over the weekend, didn't You've I? You've literally just been waiting for the right segue, haven't you? I have, you? and, and yeah. also you mentioned nickname a couple of times, and you know, I'd love listeners to know that your, your mother told me, and listen, I'm not going to betray her confidences. I absolutely won't do that, because I thought your mother was a lovely woman, and I wouldn't betray her confidences. But I just want you to know, and I want the listeners to know, that I know what your family nickname is. And I know why. And listeners, <laughs> it's disgusting and excruciatingly uh, cringeworthy. Yeah? Anyway, before we finish, uh, we've spent actually accidentally quite a lot of time not talking about Liverpool there. Have you got anything you can tell me about Mo Salah? Because uh, he's not been on fire in the same way that, he, that, he, that we've come to expect him to be. And in fact, we've seen over the course of... Uh, the last few months that uh, Sadio Mane, who is also a fantastic player and somewhat over the last few seasons has been in, or last couple of seasons has been in Mo Salah's shadow a little bit, has been the player that is popping up. And, and, and of course, this comes off the back of, of a weekend where he scored the winning goal at the very death, um, but has been the player who's consistently performed. What's the situation with Mo Salah as you see it? Is he running through a bit of a difficult vein of form or is it possible that he's just being picked up a lot more heavily because of his reputation, which now precedes him in a way it didn't previously? Yeah, I think that he's, he, scored, he scored five Premier League goals and 10 appearances. He's Liverpool's second highest scorer. Um, it's not enough. There's, there's no, well, I don't think there's much doubt that, that the, the hangover of what was a ridiculous season for him last season, uh, the injury that was sustained, the, the World Cup stuff, um, easing back into that and being, you know, for somebody whose game relies on a lot acceleration and <laughs> elasticity of, you know, everything just straightforwards. It, it's, yeah. that, that's hard. But I don't think it's, it's a massive underperformance. You know, no. it's, not, it's not like there's this huge issue around him. Um, Is he reverting to XG? I don't know. Would you like me to check? I don't know. How worth it is it to check? Probably not very. No. Um, I think, I think the, the, there's always an issue if, if a team seems to become reliant on a particular player Mm -hmm. and it's a twofold issue. The first is that the opposition know that and they're therefore able to nullify that player or seek to nullify that player. And also if that player then gets injury injury problems or suffers a loss of form or a loss of confidence or whatever it is, then clearly there's a massive impact there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just because Liverpool aren't scoring as freely as... And Liverpool have not really scored as freely since the, the that Brendan Rodgers season when they scored like... 100 or something or 99 goals or something, something ridiculous mm. you know that it as long as they're controlling games the, the the danger like you say is that there will be a couple of games where maybe they don't stop concession where mm. where the the importance of that smaller number of goals suddenly matters because they concede a penalty or whatever it is but across the course of the season it doesn't matter if you're scoring fewer than the opposition 
in terms of the table race as long as you're not losing games. Okay, well, we're going to come back and talk about Liverpool again at some point this season for obvious reasons. Um, What are those, Joe? What uh, are those obvious reasons? Top of table. Oh. People. Yeah. Big numbers people like listening yeah it's important is that why we keep doing Manchester United even though they're shit no that's because they're shit they're shit and there are so many things to say I mean it does help yeah we should talk about Chelsea we will talk about Chelsea because they're doing they're doing very well they're doing all right. yeah Um, we should also well we've talked about Spurs already we've got Arsenal coming up I think James McNicholas of The Athletic is going to pay us a visit um, and discuss Arsenal with us, which will be exciting, something to look forward to, or not, if you're an Arsenal fan. Um, And there's a little jibe there about how difficult it is currently, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, my heart bleeds for for fans of teams that have won things fairly recently and then just whinge persistently when they stop winning things. What do they win? I mean, they've, you know, they've won stuff. In 1989. My team got beaten 9-0. So yeah. everyone else can fuck off. Your, t- your team got beaten 9-0 by Leicester as well, not by Manchester City, yeah. i.e. the team you would expect to be winning. Yeah, but Leicester are really good. They also We should also be talking about Leicester. Yeah. So yeah. the and, point anyway... And also Bournemouth. And Bournemouth. The point is, there's a lot of other things we're going to talk about. Of course, we will come back to talk about Liverpool at some point in the future before the season is over. I would therefore like to hear... Um, a handful of predictions from you, which oh. we can revisit and replay the audio of the yeah. next time we do a Liverpool podcast. Right. Predictions about what? Whatever you like. You play it as safe or as more as risky as you want. I want you to say that in March, they'll be top of the league. Oh, okay. I want you to say that uh, Sadio Mane will... Uh, get two dogs and move uh, to a new home slightly more in the countryside mm. I want you to say does Sadio Mane oh I saw a great picture of Virgil van Dijk with a dog on his lap the other day did you yeah that pleased me that's not a prediction no no that's not do you that's, predict that I you'll predict go home that later Virgil and look at Virgil van Dijk <laughs> would would get a second dog to keep his first dog company right yeah 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 um yeah. Do you predict that Liverpool will win the league, the Premier League? No. No? No. Who do you predict that will win the Premier League? I'm not going to predict. Okay, for God's sake, this is a waste of time. Right, Uh, in that case, uh, that's the end of the podcast. Yeah. And uh, we will be back. I I don't know what we're doing next week, but it will be something else. Uh, Bye. Bye.